Hey guys, I don't know if you're like me, but I love Count the Dings and everything it has to offer. I just can't find everything I need. You know, I know about Cinephobe and I know about the mailbag and I know about Bomb, but that's all we do, right, I mean? No, we do so much more. What? Yeah, absolutely. If you sign up, patreon.com slash count the dings, you'll find a plethora of other content, fresh content, extended content, the OG pod overflow, the Cinephobe cold opens that we've taken and made their own thing to live only there the re-watchingtons bomb and it's full Ooh. and unadulterated cut early drops of cinephobe episodes and so much more said the og pod now is it new or is it old mace i'm glad you asked that it is a new incarnation mm-hmm. of the old og pod oh. so it's me zach trey Waz, tom i love those guys just like we always were going back to the true hoop days mm-hmm. we're recreating that magic recapturing it and putting it back out we're talking hoops we're talking pop culture and most importantly we're talking for 40 minutes for free mm-hmm. but then another specific patreon exclusive segment for every one of those episodes funny enough about that og pod you're getting tom and trey on mondays you're getting me and waz aka zosny on wednesdays Amin's floating in between i'm a floater you never know when you're gonna get Amin in those so you gotta listen to them all and what if i'm not sure what maze looks like because i've always thought he's a fat man with a fedora he's got a weird voice how can i see for myself what this maze character actually looks like it's crazy you don't know the answer to this mm. because it's the cinephobe pod youtube page what the ct5s on the cinephobe pod youtube page you can look at all of us you can get all the og pods on youtube too at count the dings one on youtube at cinephobe pod on youtube patreon.com slash count the dings gets you everything all in one feed you can link it to your spotify and now enjoy the show This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Tom? If you could eat dinner with anyone, who would you eat with? Ooh, good question. Greg Popovich, coach of the Spurs. Like Whatever I'm drinking that night is going to be fantastic, and that's going to lubricate some really good stories. I'd always like to eat with Padma. Richard Blaze would be a lot of fun, and I think the the other one I'd like to have dinner with is Guy Fieri. What about you? I'm going way back. Why not the Buddha? Yeah, oh! Yeah. Otama himself. Like You know he's got a big appetite because everywhere around the world, where there is, you know, a shrine to him, there is like cookies and stuff. Look at that figure. And I mean, I, I don't think we'd be eating a lot of meat, which would be one issue, but you know. This is Pack Your Knives. I'm Kevin Arnovitz. Tom, getting into it, uh, a little contentiousness. It's becoming a more interesting season as we weed it out. We've got snails. We've got Frenchmen. Uh, we got all kinds of stuff. We have a double elimination here, Kevin. This is this is a, a weighty uh, quickfire, and you know we we say goodbye to two chefs this episode. We also see a preview for next episode where Tom Colicchio is throwing out, uh, spitting out some food, and I, I vaguely remember this. 
but it seems like we're we're reaching we're, we've we've weeded out some of the uh, contestants here, uh, and I just I just think at this stage of the game. We're we're seeing we're seeing the the creme de la creme. We're seeing that uh, the Voltaggio brothers, um, Kevin Gillespie and Jen Carroll have really separated themselves. And this episode, I think, showed just as much. Yeah, for me, this episode really posed the, the grand question of, of casting of Top Chef. There's something obviously to be said about watching amazing chefs, like world class, top three finisher quality chefs square off in an all-star season, right? We, we saw this most recently in season 17, and that's great. I also wonder for sheer television, if it's not better to have a crop at the top, but also have, you know, and I, and I don't, I don't want to knock this chef, less experienced, uh, you know, maybe less skills that are less conducive to this particular game. But the, you know, in some ways, their disaster in the kitchen does produce better moments. Um, I think we all watch competition shows with a little bit of schadenfreude. I think it's just part of a competition. I mean, you go and you root for a team and you root against the other team or, or you just kind of want to see what materializes. And it's sort of, you know, looking back at season six and, and watching it, informed by the idea that it's Tom's favorite, that it's, you know, I think it was the award winner. Uh, Among junkies, it is considered one of the best, if not the best season. And watching some of the chefs struggle, you know, is that struggle necessary for, you know, perfect entertainment? Or is it better when we just sit there mouth agape, marveling at every single contestant? Rarely is there a screw up. Really good dishes go home. I mean, it's. I, I think this is one of the definitive questions. Well, I think I stumbled upon something that I didn't realize existed, which is Tom Colicchio did a blog during the season. And some of the posts are still oh. archived. And so I found, um, I found a post from Tom about this episode and it actually talks about some of the casting for this season that um, I found – particularly interesting. The first thing he note, noted is, I get it. The first four contestants that were went home were not men. And people, I guess, at that time were very upset about this, or at least he probably got a couple emails and Twitter wasn't ex- in existence at this point, or social media really wasn't on fire at this point. So I don't know how he would have gotten the criticism at that point, but maybe the, the uh, websites or people who are recapping the show, whether as food sites, whatnot, we're like, hey, we saw Jesse, Preeti, um, Jen, Z uh, eliminated, and also Eve eliminated, and not one of them were men. And he 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 talked about the the fact that in the restaurant industry, there is systemic inequities that make men have higher positions or more. There are more chefs in the restaurant world then there are women chefs. And so Tom said, we always have an equal amount on both sides there and, and trying to make sure that, you know, there's not 15 dudes on the show um, and two women. What they, what they, they every year ha- they have an equal amount. And this year um, he said, you know, with Hector going home, we'll talk about this later. That was the first male who went home. And he said, look, we, we judge every dish on its own merit 
And it's just a numbers game is that the talent pool that we get at Top Chef, the casting directors get far more male chefs being submitted to the Top Chef applicant pool and therefore just a higher level of talent are brought in um, just by sheer statistics. So I thought that was interesting. But we know after watching several years of Top Chef, women kick ass on this show. And so I think this is just a little um, small sample size theater where it just so happened that uh, none of the men went home in the first four episodes. Um, and here we see you know, Tom addressing it in his blog post on bravo.com. And I thought that was interesting. What, what are your thoughts on that? One thing I've always wanted to see, and I don't know, and I have to jog my memory. Tell me if I'm, if I'm missing I'd love to see one elimination challenge in a future season be blind. In other words, just have servers come out with the dishes, you know, two at a time, set them down. There's a written little blurb from each dish, uh, from each chef about their dish. Um, I'd like it to be earlier in the season before Tom and Padma, who obviously are really good at this, can probably identify. I mean, you know a Brian Beltaggio dish when you see it, right? Yeah. um, and that would be a really interesting experiment. Um, for years, Lincoln Center, I, I, or was it the Met? I, I forget. But um, in New York, always did blind auditions. And the idea was is to create more equitability uh, at a time when, you know, I think the people judging the potential musicians looked and and, and had the same experiences as the many of the uh, auditioners right. and, and what may be prone to, you know, uh, selecting, being more selective with women, with people of color. Um, there's actually a conversation about reversing that now, but I, I wonder that is one thing I would love to see again, early in a season is just what happens if the chefs do this blind and I, you know, and look, that's tricky because there's this suggestion now that, these judges are informed by who's setting the plate down. Do they, you know, do they, do they harbor give, some in uh, like yeah. subliminal biases that they just don't, they're not aware of. Right. Like if, if somebody they perceive as a top chef uh, delivers a clunker, um, do they offer an exception there where they wouldn't for a chef who's been struggling? But that would be an interesting experiment uh, yeah. on a, on early in a season where you say, let's start with seven women seven men. Uh, I do think recent seasons have been much more inclusive and, and we've seen that. And frankly, it's, it's also played out at the top, top of the heat as well. I mean, we've had seasons recently with um, where the finales have been, you know, the, the final four or five have been dominated. Yeah, Melissa way. and Kelsey and then Sarah in that season with Kelsey. Um, it's certainly, uh, you know, this, this particular topic at this particular juncture in season six, think is interesting because even in that uh, bottom three in the quick fire, there were no men there. Um, And so let's get, let's get into the episode here. Um, The first, the first quick fire was, was interesting, not just because of the elimination impact, uh, uh, the the elimination aspect of it. Where was Padma? Yeah. Where was Padma? I, you know what? It's so funny you say that. I haven't really thought about it. You know, um, like, she, isn't they, she the more, quick they fire more, queen? Were they, less, were they less rigid with that? I mean, I, I can't, I mean, so long ago, was it a regular thing where, where Tom would maybe step in? I, now that I think about it, um, I can't, 
I just remember watching this and seeing – I felt like Tom was a little off. Like he he was doing – delivering the quick fire and it, it, he didn't seem like a natural at it. And then it occurred to me that usually it's Padma doing that. And um, so he's announcing the, the quick fire and the stakes involved and uh, you know it's going to be escargot. Um, and I was just – I was just – it just occurred to me that I, it, it's become – a Padma thing, and maybe I'm thinking about this incorrectly, but it seemed like out of the ordinary that we have Tom doing a uh, a quick fire. Well, it, you know, it's, it, I've really loved as you have Last Chance Kitchen the last few years. I do, you know, Tom is always at his most Tomish when he's up on high, right? I mean, it, even literally that judge's table, I think, is elevated, and yeah, getting down in the weeds is, is less his element. Um, now this week it was kind of interesting because he had um, it was Daniel uh, Balud, yeah, who is an absolute sort of an, an absolute legend, and uh, escargot was the protein. And and by the way, Jen Carroll is so winning <laughs> because I, I just like, like she has this ability to give you good information and make it funny. Like snails are a delicate protein, and whoever thought snails were something to eat must have been really fucking hungry. Yes. You know, and so, you know, that that's I, I just Jen Carroll is so winning in this season. I just I'd forgotten um, she had a couple rough bumps in recent seasons in, in terms of elimination. And you just forget just a how dominant she was and b just how much fun it was. Um, so, yeah, anyway, it's uh, it, I, I just love her early in the season. Yeah, she uh, she has so much conviction um, and she's everything she says is super sharp. Um and I, I want to say that when you when you look at the the fact that she was last week the point guard in the in the kitchen and then comes into this and just I don't know she's she's a she's a juggernaut and then you also look at the fact that um, the the setup here you would think would uh, would give Mateen a leg up because of the fact that he's he's French. Um, and that he, you know, it's not like, it's not like he comes in and you can't really tell that he's French. He has a very strong French accent. And so I'm wondering, Kevin, when, when he's going up against French chefs, do you see that as an advantage or a disadvantage? Because, Hey, he's, he really better be stepping up to the plate. I mean, I guess in terms of exhortation, it's a disadvantage, but at the same time, I would imagine a French chef has been schooled in traditional French cooking. And I mean, there is, you would think it's an advantage. Yeah. And Mateen, look, uh, I don't know much about escargot. He says he grew up on escargot, which sure. uh, I can't remember the first time I ever had escargot, but it was, it was basically, I really liked it because it was smothered in garlic and butter. Right. Like I think people like escargot because it's just a, a, a butter bomb, right? And um, in Tom Colicchio's blog post, he mentioned that what didn't make the air, Kevin, is that they told the chefs on the show, please don't do a garlic butter sauce. Like think of something more inventive, think outside the box and do something that isn't necessarily your classic escargot with in, in those little cups uh, with butter and garlic. So um, I think that's the the issue uh, that 
one of the things when you're looking at a when you're looking at a Top Chef challenge, you're immediately going to escargot garlic butter sauce. We didn't see too much of that in well, this, and I, and I appreciate. And it. this is why I think Isabella was on top, um, or, or in the top three. You know what? He essentially did that. It was a garlic puree, a little ouzo broth, just to kind of, you know, give it a, a little bit of a, of a personal signature. And you know, Jen did grilled ramps. It was funny. This was the actual. The actual challenge wasn't to do escargot. There's always a subtext to the challenge. And this challenge was don't make it fancy. Like just, you know, generally keep it simple. I mean, I think Kevin was probably um, the one departure from that because he did his fricassee with a candied bacon jam. By the way, as on brand as a quick fire <laughs> dish can be. Like like yes. Kevin Gillespie doing a fricassee of snails with candied bacon jam. Bless his heart. I mean, it's just um, – and then the ones who – you know, failed were, you know, bagels and locks, which was very weird because I looked at that dish and I couldn't see the bagels and locksness as somebody who was like, I was nursed <laughs> on bagels and locks. Yeah, like that is, yeah. um, you know, and then you had, you know, Jesse with the Escardo LT, you know, the BLT, like there, there's a theme here, which is, you know, don't make a sandwich out of escargot. And, uh, and finally, Ashley, who just had a really difficult week. Uh, perhaps hers was too simple, kind of the mirepoix soup with escargot and a, and a salad. Um, there was something a little sad about that dish, um, and, the, and those were the three bottoms. But, but you know, it, that was actually the, the the actual challenge is let's see how restrained you can be without trying. You're going to try to be – your instinct is going to be creative with this, frankly, for, for as much – and I, I think Jen Carroll essentially said this is for as much as, ooh, it's exotic, escargot. It's like, it's like a gumdrop that doesn't taste like anything. Like it is, a, it is a delivery system for garlic and butter, as you said. You, you know, Kevin. They um, another thing like I, this Calicchio blog, blog is amazing. Um, said that they didn't have time to cook the escargot, the snails, because of the fact that it takes so long to cook snails correctly. So what they did is all the snails that they use were pre-cooked. And so their their job oh. was to essentially dress it up and make it a, a really good dish. It's already pre-cooked. And so that really made them have to think like what kind of dressing – I don't have to even think about cooking the snail. I just have to really think about the the background to this dish. And Kevin's Kevin, – Kevin Gillespie's uh, bacon jam was so good that Tom went home after shooting that episode and started working on a bacon jam uh, himself because he loved that dish so much that he went to the workshop, went to the lab and started working on his own bacon jam that could be inspired by uh, Kevin Gillespie's dish. So it was um, – you know what I loved about this quick fire, Kevin, was that it was a Last Chance Kitchen. Maybe this was kind of the the beginnings of Last Chance Kitchen, which was like, hey, you're voted – you could be voted off here. But you're going to get another shot. What you're going to do is do a a dish um, that is an amuse bouche and come back, and that's going to be what sends you wh- what's going to decide whether you stay or go. And I I, I kind of love that. It was like we kind of saw the the embryonic stages of Last Chance Kitchen here. I didn't even think about that. That's totally true. Uh, also, it was very it was interesting. Again, one of the things I love about watching old this old season is just picking up the culinary trends of that moment gooseberries is everywhere right <laughs> like they, there was that sort of gooseberry moment in in the late aughts uh you know you start seeing yuzu being 
utilized in a, in a, in a very both specific and general way. And uh, yeah, it was kind of the, the amuse-bouches were a bit underwhelming. I guess they only had 20 minutes. And again, I'm still amazed at what these chefs can do in, in 20 minutes. I was concerned for Ashley just because it didn't really look like an amuse. It just looked like a very small version of a full plate. Amuse to me is always like this one bite. Right? One bite. It, it comes yeah. in a little comes in a little shot glass or it just is you can pick it up with your fingers and and you know Ashley's her foie was sort of with, with pineapple was just like it was a real dish an actual appetizer that was reduced in size whereas Jesse's tuna tartare which she went home with with the fried quail like which actually looked really good it looked awesome yeah, it looked Kevin really I was I was like man if 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 that was an Instagram post it would win I feel like it was it was a beautiful crafted dish and I I saw that and I said oh she's not going home yeah I mean so I never. I, I'm actually someone. This will sound like a, an expression of self-regard. Is I don't like to see the chefs suffer. Like I don't watch with any Schadenfreude unless somebody's a real asshole and, and you know and they get what's coming. But it has been so sad to watch Jesse just since week since that first quick fire. Just ever since then, be the self doubt and and I have just a great deal of empathy for her. But it's just not something you see much anymore. Um, occasionally you have self-deprecation. We saw it with Stephanie, little self-doubt. Wow. I'm up against really accomplished chefs, but like it was, I mean, it was almost a mercy killing because she has been just so uh, dejected. And, um, again, not something you see on current seasons nearly as much. No, no. And maybe we're just recency bias coming off of the, the top chef all-stars, but there's so much more confidence in that season because they're much more accomplished. Right. And they've already done the show. Whereas Jesse, you could even see the tears in her eyes as she's in the bottom three again, because she's been, she's been there before many times. And, um, Jesse right now, I checked this, where are they now? Um, top chef style is Jesse is, opening a new restaurant in Baltimore, which is from Jesse Sandlin is at Jesse pancakes on Instagram. And she's opening up a restaurant in Baltimore called Sally O's. So next time I'm in Baltimore, uh, maybe going to Camden Yards, uh, if they're going to still have a season, um, checking out Sally O's. Uh, Jesse is uh, best of luck. She's a chef and owner of that restaurant. Yeah. Very cool. I mean, it's, um, again, it's been 12 years. So, uh, in Baltimore is sort of, it's again, I mean, you know, so I hate to say it every week, but you just feel for chefs who are, you know, opened in late 19 or, or were trying to open this year. Cause like, who knows what's going on no. there. Yeah. Um, I just can't imagine. Um, we're already seeing like places that were doing really well. Top of the heap, critical favorites just shut down for good now in Los Angeles. And it's just like, here's looking at you, which is one of my absolute favorites in town. Uh, gone, just gone. Uh, and, and there, there are others as well. And it's just, um, it's going to be, it's going to be terrifying when all of this clears to see what's left and the smoldering ashes is food scenes in your city, in my city around the country. Yeah. Yeah. Best of luck to Jesse on opening Salio's in Baltimore. I, Kevin, did you notice Tom Colicchio's send off line, pack your knives and leave? What do you mean? Wait, wait, wait. Go again. When Tom Colicchio said, uh, pack your knives and go to Jesse. He oh, he said, yes, said, pack your knives and leave. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which I was like, oh, wait, Padma, Padma's not here. Maybe that was the moment when I realized Padma was not there. No, it was like, it's like, I don't know if you were a kid, like when like mom was away and dad had to do breakfast. 
you know? Yeah. And so like, so my dad's thing was to sort of make it work for us when mom was away. And yes, there were traditional gender roles at my house growing up um, was, you know, you know, the pancake batter in like the milk quart, you know, which, which was sort of utilized in the eighties. Yes. So he would do the pancakes in the shape of our initials. So I would get a K and my sister would get an S and, um, and this was sort of his way of putting his personal signature quite literally on, on, on breakfast. But that was very much this episode, right? Like, like, like Patton is away and, and Tom is, is, is sort of the substitute teacher. And, but you know, I'll have to watch for that. I, I don't remember. I, I guess it is. It's a convention since what, maybe season two that Padma always does quick fire. Look, maybe it was a late night out in Vegas. Who knows? Uh, and and this was an early, maybe maybe it was an early morning, and 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 Tom was up. Who knows? But this was. Um... Hello, listener. Guess who's back? It's me, Anthony Mays, your favorite butcher turned podcast producer, and I'm here to talk to you about Butcher Box. Butcher Box is the most convenient way to get high quality meat and seafood that you can trust delivered straight to your doorstep free shipping, vacuum sealed packaging. It's ready to go right then. It's ready to pop in the freezer. You get exclusive member deals and a variety of high quality cuts at an amazing value. Going to the grocery store can be a huge pain. You're usually in a rush at an inconvenient time. You're waiting in line at the meat counter. You're taking a number. Maybe this place doesn't have a number. You're jostling with fellow customers. You're trying to get that ribeye that you want or that nice piece of salmon. Maybe the butcher that you're dealing with has a bad attitude or something. I don't know. That was never me. I promise. But maybe it happens. Butcher Box takes all of that out of the picture. You are always prepared with meat and seafood in the freezer, and you're not going to find quality for this price anywhere else other than ButcherBox. So sign up at ButcherBox.com slash Dings, D-I-N-G-S, and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. You can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash dings and use code dings, D-I-N-G-S, to choose your free for a year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Big win for Kevin. Um, Is Isabella and Jen Carroll also in the top? Um, you know, Kevin wins this. He doesn't get a he gets immunity, but on top of that, what a pleasure that must have been! Not just the release of I don't have to compete and I can just take the night off, but you get to sit down with the best chefs in the world um, at, at your dinner table so early in the season. Yeah, I mean, so it was, you know, Florent Tarendel. It was Hubert Keller, who has an uncanny resemblance to Killer Bob, um, a reference that might predate you, Tom. It is, Killer it Bob is. was Please the villain on the first season of Twin Peaks. And the first season of Twin Peaks at the time was 
probably the most innovative television ever to appear on network TV. Um, and he looked like killer Bob. He just did. Um, and, uh, who's just, you know, it was kind of freaky. Um, and Joel, uh, Robichon, who actually died a couple of years ago, but is considered just the godfather of m- kind of modern French cuisine, taking the traditional, essentially this was a very Robichon challenge, which is take the traditional French dishes and put a twist on them, retain the authenticity of the dish, but, give it uh, your own voice. And, mm. um, but yeah, Kevin sitting there, a 26 year old Kevin Gillespie dining with this particular group <laughs> is so awesome. It is vicarious living at its best. Right. And you could, again, every once in a while on top chef, there's a moment where you can just revel in the sheer joy of one of the contestants. Yeah. And it was like, yeah. he didn't say a word on screen all night. Like he was just, which is what you're, what you do. Right. I mean, you're, you're sitting at the table of the legends, you just soak up. It be just an immersive experience, and yeah, that was really cool. He was I like was a little, really happy. Little child there, he was like, he was just so giddy. It was like watching watching someone meet their favorite baseball player as a kid. Yeah. It's just, it was so cool to watch. And I, I had read that uh, Kevin had to, they had to buy Bravo had to buy a suit for him because they, they don't bring suits to this show it's top chef they don't bring a full-blown suit so they went out and bought him a, a suit and he has to sit down with this just hall of fame lineup um and i i don't i'm not particularly steeped in french cooking kevin so i i had to learn a little bit about the different techniques here um which one of the techniques were you most excited about or the sauces uh for for this episode i mean i i think like the the rabbit with chasseur, just because I never heard of that. I mean, now I know. Like when they said the chasseur is basically a, a, a brown sauce with demi glace. Um, I was like, oh yeah, I think I've seen that before. But mm-hmm. you know, I, I it's funny. Now I don't eat um, mammals this year, so um, but I'd always aspired to cook rabbit, um, even though like it does remind me of Fatal Attraction. It's just like there is something a little bit off about cooking rabbit. It just seems like they're very, they're really cute in a way that cows aren't. <laughs> <laughs> or elk or you know any of the other sort of you know non-conventional proteins but i was kind of excited also because it was jen and mike voltaggio oh man like like major you know it was funny to see i mean all of the most of the dishes did have an obvious pairing like chateaubriand and peppercorn obviously you're going there lobster and lobster sauce um then there were sort of some interesting i mean i, I think you could argue that um uh, the Poussin could have gone with that um, chasseur and you could have f- switched it up, rabbit with Veilute or whatever. But um, I, I was sort of excited. Also, I was going to want to see what Ron would do with frog legs, which um, actually the restaurant aforementioned Here's Looking at You, which I love, uh, that's closing in Los Angeles, did a XO sauce frog leg, uh, which is oh, one cool. of their one of their better dishes. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was just going to be interesting to see. Um, I wanted to see kind of what Mateen would do just because it's a home game for him, at least theoretically. And yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, it's an interesting challenge. It's one of my favorite challenges. Cause it's like, Hey, take the classics. There are these parameters, but you got to put a personal signature on it, which is actually harder than just bringing one of your dishes from home. Cause let's face it, we've talked about it. We've talked about it with contestants, you know, a lot of times, you know, they, they sort of have their mental catalog. They know what they're going to, if given the chance to have, you know, some a, a moment of, of, of personal expression in the kitchen. And this was, no, 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 no. This is what you're doing. And now, you know, within these confines, 
do the personal challenge. I love watching Michael Voltaggio work because he's got like in the in the interviews he's got like his backwards hat and he he just kind of looks like a like a Lincoln Park like um, like groupie. He just looks like he, he when he talks he he talks shit and he's uh, but then when you t- when you get him doing food or when you get him in the kitchen he is a machine yeah. and when he's when he's deconstructing that um, that rabbit and just with the hacks just boom 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 he he was he was on another level and I just respect the hell out of Michael Voltaggio because everything he puts out it looks like he's been thinking about this dish. And he's been getting that elimination challenge or whatever challenge it was for years that he like he has gotten like the cheat code of how to make this dish. And watching him and Jen, it's like they've been they've been, you know, Tony Parker and Tim Duncan running the pick and roll forever. Yeah, they had such an appealing intensity. You know, there are different brands of intensity on a reality competition show. There is intensity that manifests itself in sheer freneticism like like chicken without a head. Um, there is intensity that can be really aggressive uh, toward others. Um, I talk, you listen. And then there mm-hmm. was this appealing brand of intensity with the two of them. And we're going to talk about this a lot on the show, but I, I, I do feel like this was the moment in the course of the series where a new ceiling was set. Like Michael Voltaggio set the standard for championship. You know, it's just he there was a new baseline after season six. And I and I wonder if that when when people like Colicchio talk about the season as being just crucial, pivotal and seminal in, in the overall success of the show. I wonder if that's sort of part of it, which is, OK, this is for real. Like, look at this guy play. I mean, again, like Jordan, somebody who comes on the scene not just is better than anyone who came before them, but redefines the terms and standards of the game itself. I also mm-hmm. love Jen working with him, right? Like he's hacking that rabbit. She's going to do the demigloss. It's, you know, and, and it, by the way, and she was so respectfully deferential, but also was going to make, like was an equal contributor in the overall success. Um, I just had forgotten how appealing Jen's intensity was. It's one of my favorite things about this season. Yeah, and then also Mike's brother, Brian, with the Bernays sauce. This was such a classic <laughs> Brian dish, right? It is like the most Brian-looking dish ever. Like they cure <laughs> the trout. It's this beautifully cut. Um, and Isabella, give him credit. I mean, he kind of played a Brian game, which is let's deconstruct the Bernays. And by the way, like how do you – I mean I my first impression was how the hell – what, it's eggs and butter. Like, what are you going to do? Put a hard-boiled egg and, like, a, just a pad of butter? Like, how do you even deconstruct this? And they did the raw egg yolk. Like, that to me, in, in some ways, like, my sense was is the rabbit was the best tasting dish. I was most impressed in terms of interpretation with the trout and Bernays. Again, just like Michael's dish, Brian's dish looks like the most Brian dish you, you can yes. ever see. Um just the small shapely components on the dish. Like I love looking, you know, it was such a, you know, the simple becomes exceptional. That was the point of the challenge and he did it. Yes. And I had to look this up. The difference between a Bernays and a Hollandaise sauce. Okay. So a Bernays, a Bernays sauce is, I mean, both of them, you're emulsifying butter and egg yolks and you mix in some acidity. Um, In a Bernays sauce, 
All right, in a in a in a hollandaise sauce, which is more classic, came before a bernays. A hollandaise, you throw in lemon juice. In a bernays, you actually use white wine vinegar, throw in some fresh herbs, um, and some shallots. So that's the difference between a bernays and a hollandaise. And apparently, Brian had to walk. Isabella through that and just like, no, 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 this is how a Bernays is done. And so even though he came up with the cured trout and I, I think he sous vide it um, and the technique is instead of just sous vide uh, a, a filet of trout, which would just turn it into mush, he cured it beforehand, which injects some more flavors and actually keeps it together. So um, it, it cooks it a little bit more before you throw in the sous vide and just the technique and the the conception, the, like conceiving that dish, oh my god, what what a what an amazing job by by Brian. And I had to ask you, Kevin, about this because I don't know if this is cheating, but there does seem a little bit of a shortcut element to what happened to Hector, um, and also with Brian. Where do you fall on using like a machine to cook food and just setting it and forgetting it to use that infomercial? Yeah, I kind of felt for this team and, and for the sole reason that it's really hard to cook in ovens and machines that aren't yours. Like so something I've learned about my oven, which I bought in 2017, it runs hot, right? If I okay. if, if it calls for 400, I'm going 385. Right. Mm. And, and because I, I overcooked enough in that oven where it's like, what the fuck? Like, I'm, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's it's pretty cut and dry. Like I'm to put this, you know, chop in for X men, you know. And, and so like the thing with Hector is it was one of those, well, what the fuck are we supposed to do? And you, you saw that consternation in his face. Like, I know how to do this, man. The thing's not <laughs> cooked. Like, what am I supposed to fucking do if I take it out too early? It's going to be too rare. And because you you need to rest it. If I take it out too late, it's not going to have enough time to rest and it's going to lose its juices. Right. And so like they're up there beating the shit out of him on the chopping block. Right. Like he's up there on the chopping block. Um, and, and so are Ashley and my team for um, uh, for their Poussin um, with Villate, which like Mateen just totally bricked. But I'm up there and, and you know, and, and Gail is sitting there saying you hacked my meat to death. And and, he, and you could see him like. I had two minutes to cut fourteen slices. Bless like, his heart, Kevin. Like, Hector was was so noble, and he was. I I just want to give him a big hug. Yeah, and it's like, and, and by the way, the chefs who were judging him were correct, right? Like Chateaubriand was the easiest of the six proteins to work with. I mean, you saw it. All it takes is you know you know a pretty good roast, and and I just felt for him because like what are you like that oven clearly is not the oven. He's accustomed to working on. Who knew that it was going to run cooler well, the way my mind runs hotter? And and, and I, I don't know that there's anything else you can do yeah. um, other than, hey, you needed to get it in earlier, right? Like, like I mean, the one thing you could say is, hey, look, man, you don't know this instrument. You don't know what it's going to do or not do. Just get by yourself, you know, get yourself 10, 15 minutes of cushion at the front. You think it's going to take X time with you know, this thickness um, and this cut, but you need to leave some wiggle room in case you make a wrong turn. Um, And then my guess is the peppercorn sauce, just because that meat was drained of its juices and that they were all over the plate, you pour that sauce on, it just kind of 
it just you know mingles with that juice and which means it, it gets totally diluted and you don't really have you know the flavor it was a disaster right. i just i like unlike other disasters like it it didn't seem as if it were in self-inflicted as uh the pusenabilite and- i'm with you yep and i think um i think hector going home uh, i felt really bad because it wasn't really in his control, but the thermometer that he used to try to get to the right temperature, maybe that was um, running low or running cold or running hot. And so my o- my only critique on top of what you said is maybe if you're going to err on the side of caution, don't overcook a filet or the Chateaubriand. Don't overcook it. I'd rather undercook it and then have it rest and that may maybe have been a margin for error that would have saved him. But who knows? I mean, you also – in that audience, that peanut gallery of like the top chefs in the world, no pun intended, maybe you don't want to go under. You want to make sure that it's cooked correctly. So that was difficult to watch. And I actually thought Mateen, not his best performance in this episode. Huh? Yeah. By the way, we haven't seen that he can do much. I mean, I, I don't mean to knock it, but he's been an underwhelming contestant so far. Uh, they kind of went wrong in every respect. It was sort of the opposite wrongness of, of the Chateaubriand peppercorn team. Um, first of all, the velote, which is overly baconed. It was very sort of disappointing to see him essentially lie when he lied. Yeah, straight Ashley up. kind of in the in the Whole Foods was, hey, maybe some asparagus for the velote. He claims Frenchness and says, no, it's a terrible additive to velote. Let's just do a little bacon. Um, and it would have brightened up that sauce that was just overly, you know, Tom's funny. It, it, that was an era in cooking where everything's better with bacon. That, that, again, that late aughts bacon on everything, period. And he said, yeah, this is one exception. Uh, and then – you know, apparently the uh, the poussin was dry, the ravioli was dry. I thought it was actually a well thought out dish in terms of, hey, that's a fun way to mm-hmm. do a sauce in, in, encased in a in a in a piece of ravioli. But uh, disaster, and again, we saw like, and and I respect Ashley. I mean, she kind of almost let go of the rope. I, I think she thought she was going home, and you know, wasn't going to call out. I mean, there's nothing worse than like, what do you do? When your partner at the chopping block either lies, throws you under the bus, like if you fight, you look petty, you know, if you don't fight, you sort of look like a doormat and then you can't also defend yourself. I mean, you know, what if she says, look, motherfucker, he, or like, hey, to the judges, this asshole is lying his ass off. We stood there <laughs> right in the aisle of the Whole Foods. I suggested we introduce some asparagus into the velouté. He said, nah. you know, like, like I just wonder, look, the other way, she didn't go home. And I think they detected who was the more responsible party because yeah. the velouté was the least favorite part of the dish. But still, it, it just, I don't know how, like, how would you react, Tom? You're standing next to your partner. Your partner is just outright lying or omitting important information about what went down. You are not, you are, in terms of fault, it should be distributed 80% them, 20% you. What do you do? Do you defend yourself? Do you do a half defense? Do you get, you, do you get down in the mud? I mean, what do you do? I, I think I read the room. I look at the other contestants and it's, if it seems like I'm the lowest on the totem pole there and I'm, my head is on the chopping block, I'm, I'm defending and I'm f- putting up a fight. 
if I'm reading the room and seeing that, hey, they're not believing Mateen's bullshit, then I'm not going to put up a huge fight. If they can see through whatever he's he's claiming, um, and if he's got the magnifying glass under him and in the spotlight, I feel like I might just let him, uh, you know, ruin his day on his own. Um, and I think I think she could have gotten much stronger and and defending herself and saying, "Hey, no, you you're fucking lying, right?" But it might have come off petty, and I don't think Mateen was all that persuasive. And so she probably looked at that situation and said, "It's not worth it. He's he's actually um, he, he's making his own bet here, and he's gonna get he's gonna get bounced." Yeah. But also, I can't remember the sequence. Did did Hector and um, and Ash go first in terms of their critiques, and then I think was no, I think they were second. Ash, yeah, I think they were second. Right, so she might have seen that. Look, that they're going home. That's the losing team. So I'm not. It's not going to be me or Matisse. So that's kind of how I would feel if they were getting critiqued first, and it was clear that Matine was winning over the judges' table. I would definitely put up my fist and fight back. But at that point, um, Ash obvi- Ashley obviously made the right move because she didn't go home. But you still, there's a lot of strategy there. It's almost like at the last second, you know, a last possession play a guy breaks up the play and takes the hijacks the offense and takes the shot. And at one point you want to just say like, Hey, pass me the ball. The ball, the game was supposed to go to me. Um, the play was supposed to go to me, but maybe Ashley looked at that and said, you know what? He's not going to hit that shot. So let him fucking miss. If he I'm, wants to hijack this thing, he's going to go home for it. And I think that's what, what happened there. Yeah. I'm trying to think how I would play it. Um, Cause it's easy to sit here and try to, when the bright lights aren't on and you're up there on the chopping block, basically you're looking at a firing squad. Um, I wonder if there's a way just to say, hey, listen, it is not in my nature to throw anybody under the bus or get down in the mud and have one of those petty arguments in front of the judges. You guys deserve better. But I also can't let you know, a, an untruth just sit here. And the yeah. bottom line is I had suggested asparagus as a component um, in making the velouté and Mateen rejected it. I'm fine with him rejecting it, but what I'm not fine with is him lying about it. And I wonder if you say it like that. And again, it's very easy for me to sit here and script <laughs> it when you're, you know, up there sweating bullets and you're looking at, you know, your your top chef death. But um, yeah. By the way, one of the funnier things is like in the and you've talked about it in, in previous episodes, and it'll probably lessen over the next few weeks just because there are fewer contestants. But like, there were people whose quick fire we didn't even see. Like we saw Ron put down his dish. In the quick fire, and then we never heard. Like we never heard him talk about it. We never heard them talk about it. Oh, yeah. Which my interpretation was it was squarely in the middle, right? Um, yeah. You know his frog legs. I, I really felt for Ron in this dish. You know, I mean, he talked about. I mean, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking of the Haitian Rebellion of, of the early 1800s, and just how jobbed Haiti was by France um, in during colonial times. And I mean, they were vicious. And actually, there's some wonderful stories of sort of Haitian rebellion and, and their military leaders and, and, you know, the fight for independence. But, you know, he's, he's stuck with this protein and, you know, he's cooking for these colonialists and, <laughs> and, you know, and he, he did okay. And I was happy to see them acknowledge, I, I think, you know, and again, I've never cooked with frog. That pretext, it didn't, it didn't occur to me. So I'm glad you brought that yeah, up. Yeah. And, you know, I, and, and I, I was happy to see the judges at least acknowledge that, and again, I've never cooked with it, but that frog legs are really difficult. Um, and they didn't do poorly, but also didn't do well. They were complimented for their conception of the dish. Um, and I was glad to see they were spared, uh, they, you know, finishing in the, in the third, fourth range with, with Eli and Lorene in their lobster, um, 
dish. And a nice job by Magical Elves here. I thought that Robin in the opening when she was talking about like, I want to I want to show up for the girls because three girls have been sent home. I was like, uh-oh, this is not looking good. And then they, they showed how much dis, uh, discord there was between Ron and her trying to figure out at Whole Foods what they were going to do. And Ron was saying, you know, I, I think if there was a contestant, no one would want to work with Robin because she's all over the place. I thought that this was Robin uh, going home from from the start. And so bravo, no pun intended. Um, Magical elves, well done there because it totally duped me. I thought Robin was going to be on her way out. And instead it was was Hector who – uh, no handshakes. We I don't know if this is something new, but uh, you typically see like pack your knives and go. Uh, Thank you. Uh, Really, really appreciate being here. Appreciate everything. And then they go like handshake. Uh, with with the judges uh, to bid adieu. Not this time. They just kind of cut to Hector walking out. Um, and I really felt bad for Hector on this one. Um, yeah. He's an Atlanta chef, Kevin. So did you did you kind of look up anything on, on Hector? No, no, I didn't. I mean, I, I knew he was an Atlantic chef. I don't know that his place is still running. Did you do a where are they now? Yes, I did, Kevin. So he is um, at – he's doing like a pop-up right now called El Burro Pollo. Um, which is in the Pont City Market. Oh, Pont City Market is great. My sister lives like a third of the mile from there. It's it's where we walk from her house. Just um, it's a wonderful. They have a, they have a food hall. Uh, it's in an old, I believe it's in like the old Sears, like big warehousey thing where they they yeah. retrofitted for that. And uh, Pont City Market is wonderful. And uh, that's good to know. I, I will check it because I'm I am always at Pont City Market when I go home. Um, poor guy. I'm seeing here that uh, the story about the opening is March 13th, so we're talking about five days before the shutdown. Uh, um, man, these chefs. I, I just I can't imagine. Um, there, it's just, it's just awful. Um, some closing thoughts, Tom. Can't wait for next week. Um, we have a one the, the desert heat. They have to cook outside. Vaguely remember this. Uh, vaguely remember Tom spitting out a dish. Um, I. I you know what? We we should start bringing on some of the chefs here. Kevin, really should uh, because some of these scenes, in retrospect, I bet they have some stories to tell. And um, and also, given it, that we're removed twelve years, I suspect they're okay telling them. Yeah, yeah. The statute of limitations is over by now. Um, so one quote stuck out to me this episode from Gail saying, "I don't think we could have had this good of a meal this early in this in any season than this season." Um, and Gail is right. These chefs, the French chefs coming in this early in a season is a huge risk for Top Chef because it it could have been a disaster. You know, this early in a season, you really haven't weeded out too many of the chefs. And so it could be almost a disrespectful meal for these traditional French um, giants, right? But in this season, with the juggernauts that we have here, uh, it seemed like they were extremely pleased with what they put up today. Um, my closing thought is uh, some reading recommendations. Uh, it's a piece that actually has been around for a few weeks now, but um, Matt Golding, who's a wonderful food writer, um, one of the founders of Roads and Kingdom, which is like, if you, uh, I think he co-founded with Anthony Bourdain. Um, if you are somebody who loves food and travel and travel as a means of 
of eating and eating as a means of traveling. Uh, it's a wonderful publication online. Um, Goulding's been a wonderful food writer, and he wrote a piece for The Atlantic, which is kind of heartbreaking. It's called An Extinction Event for America's Restaurants. The post-pandemic dining experience will be unrecognizable. He does it in the format of a almost a diary where he kind of looks ahead, like what what might my eating experience be in the summer of 2020? What might it be like in 2021? And what's great about the piece is he talks about the place of the restaurant in the urban experience of the 21st century. You know, um, you know, Tom, you and I have had so many like wonderful evenings at restaurants. It is a place where you convene with the people you love. Um, it is, you know, to a certain extent, you often define your neighborhood by its restaurant offerings. Yep. Um, you can chart a neighborhood's character by its restaurant offerings. And by the way, that's whether or not it is the, you know, in, in my neighborhood, you know, the burrito place that's been there 80 years or it's, you know, a new place where young chefs have tried to make a foothold in, a, in an expensive market. And um, it's a heartbreaking, thought-provoking piece. It's really about what this might all be like. Are we entering a world where when you and I go to dinner next, the, the, the server is wearing a mask? Um, where, you know, he, he imagines a moment where the bartender coughs and the entire restaurant sort of like, you know, ears prick up and, and then mm-hmm. there's this moment of tension before you return to your meal. Um, you know, lacking the energy of a full restaurant, will we be looking at a world where tables have to be farther apart? And while I don't think anybody loves a restaurant that's too cramped, I think sometimes the energy of going out to eat is those people right next to you. There's an energy in the room, the way there's a packed house in an arena, right? And Mm -hmm. um, it's really worth reading. It's in the Atlantic. Um, It's from a June issue. And I highly recommend it, Um, you know, both for its it's beauty and its heartbreak. It's a great piece of, of writing and reporting. And uh, that, this is from Matt Goulding. Awesome. Can't wait to read that. And this has been a um, – I, I really like this episode, Just not, not just with the, uh, with the French legends in that room, but kind of awesome to see Kevin Gillespie sitting at that table and, and some of the, the humanity just popping through the screen there, how cool that must have been for him. So um, really good. Um, that's that's about all I have on this episode, and uh, I, I can't wait to see what Tom spits out and which ditch he wants. For Tom Hoverstrom, this is Kevin Ornovitz, and this is Pack Your Knives. Nice.